Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. It's football. Football. Yes. Cannot include us pronouncing it like that. <laughs> Footy. <laughs> Footy. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm your host, Dylan Matthews, and I am joined today by Vox Policy reporter Jerusalem Demsis. Hello there. And ProPublica's Dara Lind. Hello. Today, we're going to talk about the most visible way that life has gotten more expensive in recent months, rising gas prices. So, gas prices have risen nearly 50% over the last 12 months. Gas, along with propane and other heating fuel, is by far the area of the economy where prices have grown the fastest, per the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Other prices are growing too. We we have inflation, but they're at an annual rate of more like 4 or 5%. That's higher than ideal. The Fed wants us to have more like 2% inflation. But again, gas prices are up 50%. That's just a whole other level. It's 10 times worse than the average for everything else. And gas prices are just a very, very sticky policy problem. They are largely set in the global oil market, and the Federal Reserve does not even look at food and energy prices precisely because it doesn't think it has any ability to control them the way it controls other prices. The White House doesn't have much more ability to affect gas prices than the Fed does. Joe Biden has instructed the Federal Trade Commission to investigate price gouging in the oil industry. I'm dubious that that will accomplish much, but he sent a very strongly worded letter. And this morning, Biden also announced that he's releasing about two and a half days worth of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which is literally like a big pile of oil that the U.S. keeps for emergencies. We're doing this in conjunction with other countries like China, India, Japan, Korea, and the U.K., all of which are also tapping their own reserves. My understanding from economists is this could lower prices a bit, but not that dramatically. It's just a few days of oil. It's it's a year-long problem. It's not going to solve all of it. And making this whole problem just a lot more complicated is that the Biden administration says it really wants to tackle climate change. And arguably, higher gas prices are good for the climate. They encourage people to drive less, to rely more on public transit, to buy electric and hybrid vehicles instead of high-emissions gas ones. And so... Dara, Jerusalem, I wanted to open this up. How do you think we got to this point where, where gas prices are, are growing so fast and what's the trajectory look like now? It does seem like, unsurprisingly, oil, like everything else, is dealing with something of a supply chain crunch because there were huge cuts to supply that 
OPEC plus, which is the traditional OPEC members plus some like newer oil exporting nations, such as a couple in Africa, that that coalition of countries cut supply radically in 2020 um, because there was a global pandemic and demand for everything was much lower. And there is now something of a maintenance backlog in several of those countries. Uh, Nigeria and Angola in particular are like really struggling to get back to, you know, production pace, much less to be able to, you know, keep pace with the demand. And generally, there is something of, you know, a feeling that it's just going to like take a little bit of time for production to kick up to the level that demand has rebounded to. So, you know, we could be looking at surpluses early next year, which would bring prices down, obviously. But like early next year isn't super helpful to Americans right now. And as you were saying earlier, Dylan, there there are two important realities here. One is the policy reality that like the obvious levers that the U.S. government has to control the economy have nothing to do with what sets gas prices. And the second reality, which is like equally important, is that as far as Americans who drive are concerned, this is like one of the most obvious ways that the economy affects them. And it seems to me like a non-starter to say it is incumbent on the Biden administration to educate the American people that there isn't anything that he can do on gas. It's not just that OPEC isn't producing as much. Uh, Dara's right, of course, that they did cut production. And then, you know, earlier this year, they kind of just refused to increase production much more around 400,000 barrels a day in November, which is less than 0.5 percent of the world demand. And a really big part of the problem here is that, like, imagine, like, trying to wrangle, like, 23 different countries to do something, even though you kind of have, like, somewhat aligned interests in trying to keep oil prices high. Sometimes you don't. Like sometimes certain countries care about um, increasing market share for whatever reasons or other geopolitical interests that they have. You know, larger countries may be themselves facing the political blowback of having high gas prices. So this is not to, uh, you know, sympathize with OPEC at all, but just to understand why it might be difficult to get them to produce more. But, you know, the U.S. is also a big producer of oil and gas. I think the largest producer in the world at this point. And we had some supply issues as well. West Texas Intermediate, which is the American standard of oil, climbed to $78 a barrel, highest level since late 2014 um, earlier this year. And part of that is because we saw um, during Hurricane Ida, we shut down the largest uh, swath of oil drilling capacity in the Gulf of Mexico. So that was obviously a really big impact on American oil production. And so, you know, you know, there are a lot of things going on at once. And I think also, of course, we have this increase in demand happening as more people are vaccinated and we're also heading into the holidays. You know, so all of these things are coming together to produce this effect, which I think, as Dylan mentioned, is just super visible. It's not like anything else. And I think this is what's really interesting is like a lot of times economists are searching for um, ways to see how people are judging what the economy looks like. And obviously there's like this personal checkbook thing, right, that you have. Um, and for many people, uh, you know, that's just like your wages and, and maybe some other small things going on. But most people aren't taking out big loans and checking interest rates all the time or aren't aware of like, you know, mortgage rates constantly if they're not in that industry or if they're not particularly buying a house at that moment. But, you know, you literally walk down the street constant or drive down the street constantly and you see these large signs telling you how the economy is doing, uh, quote unquote, and they're just these gas prices. I keep seeing these like funny quips on Twitter that we should start doing this with like better things like the unemployment rate or whatever. But anyway, so that's kind of how we got to where we are now. 
I mean, the other thing that I think is worth fleshing out a little bit is Jerusalem mentioned in passing, you know, a refusal by the OPEC plus countries to increase production more than they already were this summer. And part of the reason for that, it's it's not just a, you know, traditional cartelization like, no, we enjoy making you pay a lot of money for our oil. It's also that we are still in a global pandemic and there has been a lot of concern that once you know the kind of global north hits the winter months that there will be another resurgence of covid and that that will reduce demand again and like short of making some kind of promise to buy a bunch of oil that no one is really asking for just to keep production guaranteed high like there isn't a whole lot that can be done to to ensure future demand is going to remain as high as current demand is. And so there is a certain rationality to saying like, yeah, you want the oil right now, but we can't make it, we can't make it be here right now. And we don't know that you're still going to want it three months from now. I've seen some oil analysts arguing that one thing that could drive oil prices down is just that COVID is making a comeback in some European countries, uh, which might lead to less driving, less oil usage. And it's it's a really ugly reality when like the political incentives of of American politicians are for people in Europe to maybe get sicker uh, so that they uh, they drive less and drive down demand for oil and lower gas prices in the U.S. so that the Democrats can win the midterms. Uh, I, I don't think anyone is consciously thinking in that way, but it's it's a very complex sort of interlocked market. So much of this is based on what the OPEC countries, but also just like markets in general, expected the world to do after March 2020. But this is sort of like hard to remember now just because of how differently it's gone. But it really felt similar to September 2008, where you had this big climactic like financial panic with the, the onset of the pandemic. And I think most sort of institutions predicted a slow kind of lethargic and gradual comeback akin to what happened from 2009 to, to 2017, 2018, where you you take like a decade or more to get back to where employment was uh, previously. And so that means less oil production, but it also means sort of fewer uh, cars and trucks produced, fewer semiconductors built. And everyone was was really caught off guard by having a an immediate snapback recovery in large part because of the Federal Reserve under under Jay Powell, uh, because of uh, Trump and Biden's fiscal stimulus plans. And so gas is the most extreme example, and it's it's perhaps the least flexible because there's less of a free market in that that it's uh, and it's not just OPEC, as, as Dara mentioned, sort of the OPEC plus countries adds in places like Russia and Mexico that they give that alliance even more heft. But so much of it was is sort of like the bigotry of low expectations. <laughs> that no one expected us to do this well. And because we're doing this well, the price of everything is going up uh, because everyone 12 months ago assumed that we would be much more screwed than we are. Yeah, I know, Dylan, you mentioned the, the strategic petroleum reserve at the top of the episode, but there's also another uh, thing that Biden administration could do. Um, obviously, nothing could really fundamentally bring down prices for a sustained amount of time. But one of the things that's been suggested is uh, about the renewable fuel standard, um, which basically requires refineries and fuel importers to either buy or blend a, a quota of ethanol, which is essentially it's just a giveaway to farmers, corn farmers and soy farmers. Right now, I mean, 40 percent of U.S. national corn is used for ethanol production. 30 percent of soy oil produced in the U.S. is used for biodiesel. And there's a really big lobby that is important politically that 
is opposing this right now. I mean, there was just a day ago a story about how U.S. Representative Rodney Davis, who's a congressman from Illinois, um, he's a co-chair of the House Biofuels Caucus, and he's calling on the president to keep his word to farmers as there's whispers that the Biden administration might be reversing some of this, which would, you know, at some level, reduce the cost of of gas, but also of food as well, because this cost of corn and 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 soy is 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 high because of this artificial demand that we're creating with these standards. There's also like a myriad of other like small things. I mean, like that you could do with tariffs or things like that that might be able to reduce inflation somewhat. But it's just hard because like the fundamentals are just there and it's just super visible right now that this is causing and we're about to head into Thanksgiving where people are going to be driving to see their family members really far distances. And so anything you're doing is not really going to reduce the fact that people right now are going to be experiencing some sort of sticker shock at the gas station. The policy conversation is limited both because, you know, the actual levers are quite limited and the effect of those levers is limited, but also, you know, because of what Dylan mentioned earlier, which is that the operating assumption of the Fed is that because it can't affect gas prices, it ought not like, you know, like not not necessarily it ought not measure them, but like it ought not consider that as one of its inputs into what it should be doing with the economy. And while that is very understandable from a our policies have a huge impact on the economy and therefore we need to be very careful that we're only making decisions based on the things that we can change. On the other hand, it doesn't mean that a situation like this isn't that implausible, right? Like this, it's it's not like super historically weird that we're in a situation where, as far as the Fed is concerned, the economy is going, you know, pretty damn well, and inflation is not a humongous problem. Like it's it's a problem, but it's not a humongous problem. And at the same time, there is this pocketbook effect of Americans seeing this very like visible to them input that is much worse than is even visible in the Fed's reality. Yeah. And and to that point, like there's one influential theory of what happened in the 70s with uh, where you had an oil crisis and then uh, this big inflationary spiral encompassing gas prices, but but not just gas prices that sort of lays it directly at the feet of of the uh, the gas price hike. Uh, Alan Blinder and, and Jeremy Rudd, who we, we talked about a, a few months ago on this the show, had a couple of very nice papers arguing that this explains basically all of of the 70s inflation that oil was just a really crucial input to, to all kinds of things. And so when it spiked, it led to uh, kind of a mechanical increase in, in inflation across the board. But I think one of their takeaways from that is that it wasn't necessarily the right response to that to, to jack up interest rates. That sort of what you would be doing if the, the Federal Reserve took this into account and decided, you know, the gas price problem is, is seriously threatening inflation across the board. What they could do is raise interest rates, which would reduce lending, reduce business spending, reduce individual spending by by reducing the number of people getting like mortgages, buying houses, taking on credit card debt, all the things that you pay interest on and would probably put some people out of work because people are spending less. And so there people are spending less at places that employ people. And so you would basically be pushing some people out of work uh, because we've decided that we can't have this many people spending because there's not enough for them to buy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the solution to that is to to get rid of the people spending <laughs> or to get rid of their income 
this is something that's really bothered me about the discourse. People talk about like, oh, inflation's getting high, but like people should be required when they complain about this to explain that raising rates is saying that people should lose their jobs. People are paying a little bit more at the pump, but also more people are employed and are not like in poverty. Obviously, we know when unemployment goes up, we see more suicides. We see more. uh, uh, There's studies that show that abuse can go up and things like that. So like, you know, we're paying for something that is actually very valuable in society right now. And I feel like sometimes we can get lost in that because people are just like focused on the the current thing of the moment that is that is bad. One reason we we care about the current thing at the moment is that it seems to have really major political implications. And when we come back from our break, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the evidence on on how gas prices affect politics. So uh, stay tuned for that. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. And we're back. So we talked a little bit about the right policy response to, to gas prices and to inflation generally, but I wanted to get into the politics as well as the policy of gas prices. I was looking a bit into the the political science of of gas prices, and there's there's some literature here. Um, so one one influential paper is by the political scientists uh, Laurel Harbridge Young, John Krosnick, and Jeffrey Woldridge, and it looks at presidential approval from 1976 to 2007, and it finds a really really significant effect of gas prices on presidential approval ratings. So their exact estimate is that a one dollar increase in the price of gas should reduce presidential approval by about six to seven percentage points. And that's like six to seven percentage points when you're talking about approval numbers that hover around 50%. That's a big deal. Like it's the difference between 
Biden having a positive approval rating and him being underwater. And historically, presidential approval is, is one of the things that predicts midterm elections best. And so if you're moving approval by that much, you might be changing the 2022 elections. And this paper found that it wasn't just that the news was talking about gas prices. I saw some people like my, my former colleague uh, Dave Roberts saying, you know, it's just that the media is talking about inflation. And it's, it's not that, according to, to all the research on this, that it's like the fact that this cost of living thing is going up and that you might be seeing it at, at gas stations around. It's very visible to you, not just from news coverage. And similarly, there was a, a paper a few months ago by Sung Yun Kim and Jun Zuk Yang that found that the gas prices and voting in presidential elections, so this is voting, not approval, like in the last paper, but they're more correlated among people who have long drives to work, which, again, seems to suggest that like the actual cost of high gas prices is driving political outcomes rather than just like the, the noise and discourse around it. So, Jerusalem, we were talking about this a bit earlier, but like, how bad is this for Biden? Uh, should we like expect him to get blown out of the water unless like gas prices fall suddenly again? First, just to put a couple numbers on the uh, second paper that Dylan just mentioned, they basically find that in commuting zones where people on average are spending about 10 minutes in their commute to work, a dollar increase in international gas prices is associated with a decrease in the presidential vote shared by less than three percentage points. But in commuting zones where individuals are spending about half an hour on commuting, the effects of gasoline price changes increased almost seven percentage points in commuting zones. And people who are commuting, I mean, this isn't in the paper, but just like we know this, people who are commuting like half an hour, like often these are people like in the suburbs of major cities, which is usually <laughs> important swing districts that are that are relevant to, to whether or not uh, someone wins a uh, presidential election or, uh, you know, midterms or things like that. You know, I think this is one of those things that's it's really hard to game out, A, because while I was researching this, I also read a lot of papers that talked about how short-termism people are about the economic records of presidents that like, you know, gas prices could spike now, but if next year they're low, like this is just not something people are paying attention to anymore. I also think that it's like, given that we talked about how little there is really for the Biden administration to do here, and also how, as Dylan has mentioned, this isn't something about like posturing, right? This isn't like some media PR campaign that you can do to convince people that it's actually okay. Like people are seeing gas prices every day and they're making their decisions about how good the economy is based on that, regardless of whether or not you think that that's like a good way for people to decide about the economy. You know, one thing that I will note is that, uh, there are worse things than gas prices. As we remember in 2020, gas prices were below $2, but also half a million people died. The president's party changed that year in the election. So um, there are things more important than gas prices. That's not to hand wave their importance. It's just to recognize that like the places where you have to focus are, are ones that you can actually impact some change here and um, accept the fact that there's going to be some political harm if gas prices happen to be high when you are up for election and you're the incumbent. I think that while it is definitely extremely true that like things that happen in odd numbered years, there's reams and reams more like produced anxiety about how they're going to affect the incumbent party in the midterms than there actually is an impact in the midterms, like nine times out of 10. But also because there is a long time until the midterms, there's going to be a lot of discussion among people who are invested in the continued success of the Democratic Party in particular about what is going to happen in the midterms. Because, you know, I think that there is a certain amount of 
ambient awareness that in parties tend to lose midterm elections and that any kind of added evidence that things are going to be hard for Democrats is going to inspire a great deal of hand-wringing and a great deal of, can we do something about it? And the we here is being constructed not just as elected officials, but also as like the media, because there is among certain, you know, sectors of, of the liberal commentariat, this idea that everyone's experience of America is wholly mediated and that therefore the media has a great deal of control into people th- thinking that the country is doing well or not. So, you know, it's important to recognize that like this conversation is going to keep happening, even if gas prices end up going down in time for it to be a total non-issue in the midterms. There's still going to be a few rounds of this like consternation and finger pointing going on. And a lot of this is people being unsure of whether the Democrats can sustain, you know, a a majority under the current structural circumstances, whether the absence of Donald Trump on the ballot is going to be a problem for Democrats, whether there is going to be any ability to prevent the, you know, scenario that a lot of Democratic-affiliated people are worried about in 2024, which is that there is enough congressional and state control by Republicans that, you know, if Donald Trump runs again, there will be a critical mass of people in power who are able to do whatever to override election results. I think that the kind of gravity of that worst-case scenario and the fact that there are kind of continued drumbeat of news stories about changes happening at the state party level means that any conversation that has any implications for the midterms is going to become very emotionally charged among the people doing the commentating because it's absolutely impossible to distinguish the question of should the media be talking about how high gas prices are from the question of what's going to happen to democracy three years from now for the people who spend their time talking about what Democrats should be doing on the internet. The concern and the heightened tension around these things that have some sort of electoral impact that are sort of outside of the control of the president or even Congress in many ways is that they might pursue kind of really bad policy decisions in an attempt to seem like they are actually addressing it. I mean, one example, I mean, Ron DeSantis is uh, um, proposing a $1 billion tax break on gas taxes in Florida. I have no idea if this is actually going to happen. But one of the problems with this is that, like, the tax break is comes, like, at the end of the year. It's going to happen, like, when you're filing your taxes. So, like, does nothing for the immediate upset and anger over the rising price of gas right now. But also just be that, like, I do not think that voters are looking for people to posture on this. I mean, I know that, like, Biden sent this letter on what was it to? It was to the the FTC, to, to Lena Khan, to, to make oh, her, yeah. like, find all the crooks in the gas industry that are that are driving up gas prices. Exactly. It sort of reminded me, this is a mean comparison, but when, like, the leaders of the French Revolution were like, oh, the reason that, that the wheat prices are up are the speculators. Go find and kill the speculators. <laughs> <laughs> I, I to be clear, you heard it here first, kids. <laughs> I don't think that Joe Biden is similar to Robespierre, except in blaming weird stuff on the speculators. I mean, I kind of get it, right? Like, given the traditional politician's fallacy, something must be done. This is something, therefore, this must be done. And given like what Jerusalem is talking about in terms of like the policy downside of various policy responses, it seems like doing something that's going to be symbolic, but that allows you to identify a villain and say you're going after them is like, you know, the upside of the doing something optics without the downside of actually causing policy. Yeah. 
We should probably talk about climate change here, though, because I think that the part we've we've talked a lot about the political implications of of gas prices. But like in net, like it's good for gas prices to go up because, as Dylan mentioned, people drive less. But also there is like a bunch of other things that um, happen. People will often start buying fuel efficient vehicles uh, rather than gas guzzlers as a result of this. And I also found this really interesting paper, NBER paper from 2019 by Christopher Severin and Arthur Van Bentham called Formative Experiences in the Price of Gasoline. And basically what they find is that teenage exposure to gasoline price spikes changes subsequent commuting behavior. So people who are like 15 to 17 years old, driving age between 1980 and 1981, who were seeing gas prices double as they were learning to drive and getting maybe their cars for the first time and also experiencing long lines at the pumps. This has persistent effect on how they choose to live their lives in the future. They are significantly less likely, uh, 0.38 percentage points to drive and 0.29 percentage points more likely to take public transit. Um, And they look at the cohorts before and after and they're not experiencing these effects. So it's not just like a generational shift. It's like these people saw the the annoyances of what can occur when, when price shocks happen in gasoline. And I don't know, this paper is very interesting to me. I love I love how uh, economists always phrase this as exposure. It's like all <laughs> in all all these like persistence papers. Like I'm gonna go to my dad and be like, you know why you bought a Honda Fit? You were exposed. <laughs> you were exposed to the poison of the gas crisis. <laughs> anyway, I mean, I kind of feel like the the people who are coming of age into driving age right now are. Zoomers who, as far as anyone can tell, are all radicalized anyway and believe that we're in imminent climate emergency. So I'm not even sure how much like I know that we're not getting a representative picture from like TikTok and Greta Thunberg. But um, <laughs> there is, you know, it it does seem like they're they're pushing on an open door there. But, you know, I think that this does still speak to the politics of it, though, because it means that it's very complicated for the Democratic Party in particular to do anything about it, because a lot not only does the Democratic Party have like environmental activists in its tent? But also a lot of the Democratic policymaking class is in the background, very concerned that global warming is at a crisis level and that we certainly shouldn't be doing a whole lot more to make it worse. But at the same time, like if this is a thing that is very meaningful to most Americans lived experience of how the economy is doing, it is not a great answer to say, well, you shouldn't be buying gas anyway. Believe us, this is going to be good for your, you know, long-term descendants. And it does seem like a certain pain point for the short-term politics of climate change, that if you don't have an answer to, but this is hurting me right now, that it's going to be harder to not engage in short-termist thinking that's going to ultimately have a much more damaging climate impact than what the U.S. is doing right now. It's striking to me just how universal this political backlash is. Uh, Amber, our our beloved deputy director for for Talk Podcasts, sent this uh, really interesting article on what's happening in New England that there's long been sort of regional collaboration on trying to fight climate change in New England through things like the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. And last year, there was this effort by uh, sort of a bipartisan group of governors. It sounded like Ned Lamont, uh, Gina Raimondo, who was then the governor of of Rhode Island, and, and Charlie Baker to modestly increase their gas prices to try to reduce car usage and get their emissions under control. And the piece was pointing out that this is just like completely gone out the window this year. And this is our like Charlie Baker. He's a Republican. Sure, maybe he would have been the the squeaky wheel no matter what. 
but like Ned Lamont is a pretty left wing governor. <laughs> um, and, and he like could not bear modestly increasing gas prices for the sake of a like pretty modest climate initiative. I think it just like underlines what an intense pressure test and like brutal failed test climate change is for political institutions. And and part of it is just that the stakes of any one thing don't seem that dramatic. Like, I don't think that initiative was going to be the difference between New York City flooding or not flooding. But people are not willing to bear basically any costs uh, for, for the sake of, of helping the climate in general. And just like stepping back here, though, I, I do think that this is a, a broader problem with climate politics is that sometimes it seeks to you know, there are many people I think feel like we need to punish people into a greener future, into a greener economy, like, you know, raise gas taxes and make it really harsh. And then people will be forced into taking on renewable cars and energy and transit and things like that. I think that I would say which what's pretty clear is that if climate movement positions itself oppositionally to the economic benefits of being a middle-class American, um, it's going to lose uh, pretty quickly and not without much fanfare, honestly. Um, And I do think that, I mean, this is something we talked about on a recent Friday episode with Derek Thompson, but just like the way that you can push people towards living a greener life on a day-to-day level, whether it's living in more green, dense, friendly cities and, and taking transit, is that you make transit and things like that better. Like, obviously, the paper I talked about earlier indicates that, like, if you make things worse, some people will change their minds. But we're not going to punish Americans into giving up the material benefits of being American. And also, you know, I think it really undermines, like, what the vision of a green future really is, which is that you can actually have a lot, if not all of the material benefits of being an American and still have low emissions. I mean, investing in things like the energy sector and in clean and renewable energies and also public transit and people can live more densely and will still be happy and still have the the, the goods and services that they're used to is like, you know, actually a potential future to have. And, you know, I don't want to make it seem like there's like nothing that people are going to have to give up. Obviously, there's going to have to be some less driving of large gas guzzling trucks. But I don't think that it's possible that we can say that people are going to get into the green energy future by being forced into it by high gas taxes. Yeah. I mean, I think that if we were in a world where the only imperatives were the economic well-being of like the median American and the long-term needs of the climate, like those are a solvable politics, absolutely, for all the reasons you were just laying out, Jerusalem. The problem is that there are also other incumbent interests. Like it is not like not for nothing that when we were talking earlier in the episode about the alternative fuel standard, the label alternative fuel just means ethanol, <laughs> which is not exactly at the forefront of sustainable renewable energy production, but is a very That's powerful That's an affront to very... America's farmers, Dara. <laughs> exactly. You. For very obvious, like regional politics reasons. So when it gets tricky is when you have to talk like both kind of square the macro, okay, we're going to both, you know, help the economy and help the climate together and navigate which of the various interests that say they will help you accomplish that goal are actually going to help you accomplish it and which of those are so powerful that you need to buy them off in order to get anything done and how much of the latter before you really aren't doing anything good for the climate at all. Right. Well, I think just to to praise the climate movement for a moment, and not just because they're trying to save us all from catastrophe, which deserves deserves plaudits, uh, even when they're occasional tactical errors, like the Green New Deal was explicitly an attempt to do this, right? Like the push for carbon taxes or cap and trade even was like viewed as just punitive. 
that no one would like get any investment in in that. It was just making energy more expensive without commensurate benefits. But if you package it with uh, expanded access to healthcare, expanded welfare programs of of every variety, then you can sort of get something that's politically durable. And I think like that theory in some ways is being like, if Build Back Better passes, it will pass kind of because of that logic mm-hmm. that uh, the the climate provisions are not a gas tax or a carbon tax uh, as of this moment. They're like tax credits. They're just giveaways. Um, and then it's packaged with a variety of enhancements for, for the welfare state. But I think as Dar was saying, like as soon as you zoom out and start talking about this as a collective package that could in theory include anything – and you're in a party like the Democratic Party that is a loose coalition of interests more than it is an ideologically cohesive unit the way the Republican Party is, then what you say no to <laughs> becomes very difficult uh, and you end up including everything and you wind up in a situation where a Medicare for all, uh, which is unpopular for an entirely different set of reasons, has to be part of the Green New Deal or police reforms that are unpopular with, for XYZ reasons. And so you end up with something where instead of sort of using packaging some popular stuff with the unpopular like climate vegetables, you end up with such a, a vast package that the share of people who support everything in the package is minuscule. But if you feel like you can't cut anything, you get to the situation where we might like like the current structure of Build Back Better seems to be that like the United States turns into Sweden for six months next year. And then goes back. Yeah, there's an e-bikes tax credit, guys. E-bikes are great. I don't know if anyone here has tried one. Would recommend. Also, it feels like we're never going to get sponsored by the Renewable Fuels Association at this point. It really feels like we've said no to those dollars. So, sorry, Vox. Well, e-bikes feel very European. And you know what else is European? Soccer. So, <laughs> Jerusalem, you shouldn't have praised him. That <laughs> <It> was horrible. <laughs> that was so bad. That was awesome. That was my best segue. Also, um, the ball is the world sport. Please don't relegate it to just Europe. For the purposes of this white paper, soccer is European. So we're going to take one more break. And when we come back, we're going to dive into a white paper about a, another very European thing, which is the market for soccer players. Uh, stay with us. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. All right, we're back. This week's white paper by Britta Glennon, uh, Francisco Morales, Seth Carnahan, and Ezequiel Hernandez is all about soccer, or as everyone outside our weird little country calls it, football. So I barely know anything about American sports, let alone the more sophisticated sports that cultured Americans uh, are supposed to follow. So I'm going to allow Dara and Jerusalem to take the lead here. Uh, Dara, what, what does the paper do and, and what does it find? So this is not fundamentally a soccer paper, but the paper is actually situated in the literature of what highly skilled immigrants do for organizations. Because while there's a lot of research on the impact of immigrants on markets, there isn't as much that folk that kind of like looks at the firm level. And so this paper exploits variation in 
laws and rules regulating when you can and can't sign foreign players and, you know, who counts as foreign among various European countries as as kind of the like natural experiment for the relationship between how well a club is doing and how many foreign players it has on its team and finds that there is a modest but like, you know, significant difference in victory margin, which is to say goal differential of like 0.12 additional goals for having more immigrants on the team. And furthermore, finds that this is more likely to be due to the immigrants are talented enough that it's going to raise the average skill level of your team than to any kind of diversity benefit of having complementary skills, players working well together, that kind of thing. In that case, they find that there is only a positive benefit to team performance if the manager of the team is also an immigrant. In other cases, there is either a null or a negative relationship between kind of the diversity in terms of like the national diversity of the club overall and club performance. So just to tease that out a little bit, essentially what they're trying to figure out, as Dar mentioned, is like, how do immigrants impact firm productivity as opposed to firms that don't take immigrants? And this is important because in the United States and in other countries as well, a big lobby for high-skilled, quote-unquote, high-skilled immigration is the business lobby. And these are folks that clearly believe that there's going to be some benefit to them for uh, importing um, workers from other countries. So there's like a couple of ways that, uh, you know, the economics literature does not really tell us a ton about how this is happening or why they believe this. But there's a couple of ways that this could work. One, which the paper does find, as Dara mentioned, is that just like there's this selection mechanism that skilled uh, that immigrants are just better than native players at the sport because similarly to women in male-dominated, extremely sexist industries, um, the only ones that are able to actually main- remain are the ones that are just much better than the men that are in those industries. And similarly, immigrants and getting through that process, getting through the green card process or the um, whatever the immigration process is in Europe, uh, whether you're an immigrant there from a child or to get there as a soccer player is really costly. It's also just difficult to find those people and bring them there. So all those costs have to be really worth it. You have to be a much better player than the native player that would have replaced you in, in uh, if you were not there. And so they find that they're better at things like pass accuracy, um, goals, uh, propensity to be in the starting lineup, things like that, that you can like clearly measure with sports like this. Um, obviously, the goals doesn't sound like a lot, but like remember that with like soccer, like, you know, a game could pass and like one goal has been scored. Um, so so point one of a goal is actually like a significant number. My assumption was that this was going to be a um, selection mechanism. So I, you know, glad that that was borne out. Um, I was intrigued because I think that the literature on diversity is, you know, quite mixed. Uh, In some firms, like diversity can increase productivity because, you know, it's just a bunch of different people questioning assumptions, being able to bring different perspectives and, you know, can strengthen the processes and the uh, products that the firm um, produces because, you know, you're not just you're doing groupthink or things like that. But also there's a bunch that says that people are unhappier in diverse workplaces because there's just more conflict because people don't accept the premises that you might hold. You know, I was interested in this and like, you know, I, I'm not sure how replicable this um, research and findings are to uh, non-soccer clubs because soccer clubs are like, quite unique. Like, you know, there are rules. Like, it's not like a startup where you can just feel like, oh, we found that a better way to play soccer is if you can, like, pick it up with your hands. <laughs> like, you know, there's not a lot of, like, that you can, like, there's not a lot that diversity can do. So, like, I know this finding here was, like, kind of, like, meh on whether or not diversity is actually increasing productivity, but uh, I'm not sure how much that speaks to the broader, broader uh, thoughts on what immigrants would do in other firms. I mean, I think that you're right that, like, the the ceiling for the diversity benefits of immigration is pretty low in the soccer context because it's not just that like questioning assumptions isn't going to work a whole lot. It's also that 
It's not like, you know, the Spaniards have spent generations perfecting the art of the set piece. And like, meanwhile, there's a, a, a much stronger attack tendency in the Nordic countries. Like things aren't specialized in that sort of way, in a way that they would, that they perhaps would be in other, in the context of other industries. Are they but, not? Aren't, aren't Germans, like don't Germans, isn't there like a German style of soccer? And like a, I mean, there know? is, but it's much more about coaching than about play. Like, it's not like, oh, I am only good at this one thing because I was raised yeah. in Germany. Like you have to be able to yeah, play yeah, the yeah. full game. <laughs> so, it, you know, so, but the part of the paper about, you know, finding the negative relationship does, I think, speak to a substantial concern, you know, that could also exist in other contexts. And that's where the having the immigrant manager is the important variable starts really popping out to me because it re- it it seems like there is likely to be more interpersonal conflict on the team, like that that is what the that instead of having, you know, assumptions questioned and that kind of thing, that there is just going to be less team cohesion, you know, potentially more conflict or just more like, you know, de facto segregation among players. And that if having immigrant leadership, either because it is like role modeling or because an immigrant manager is going to be more attuned to these things and work more actively in like team exercises to combat them, if that mitigates the negative effects of, you know, social diversity in in a workplace, that seems like a very interesting lesson for other industries to take away. The paper I found myself wanting to read after reading this paper was something with the same independent variable. So so something about what happens when you have more immigrants on on soccer teams, but something about what happens to the fans that oh, uh, there yeah that there's there's just the there's a long history in the US of Jack Johnson, Jackie Robinson, Muhammad Ali like sports as a vehicle for social change and and acceptance but also those people all underwent horrific abuse from from racist fans. Muslim players especially still get that kind of abuse in in European soccer. You saw that a lot in in the last World Cup. And I'm curious to see if if you get more of a backlash or more more of a sympathizing effect. Like, I think on net, I don't have like a study to link to for this, but it seems like Muhammad Ali was was profoundly positive on net uh, for sort of American tolerance. But I I'd be curious to see if that the same is true in the context of European institutions, since in theory, like if they're making your team have more goals and they're getting you to root for a team that includes immigrants, that might move the dial, but people don't always uh, respond to things that way. I have to tell you the story now, though, because this actually raised Newcastle United, which is a football club in the UK, got bought by a Saudi Arabian funded consortium. Essentially, all the fans are excited because it means they're probably going to get a lot better because a lot more money. And they started wearing like tea towels and like homemade headdresses like in support of their new club leaders. And then the Newcastle United club was like, you should stop doing this because it's racist. But then the Saudi Arabian consortium apparently indicated that they don't have a problem with them doing this because it was a positive engagement with the Saudi Arabian government rather than they're used to. (laughs) But like at these games, it's absurd. At these games now, apparently they're like, images of like Jamal Khashoggi that opposing teams will like bring. I'm not sure what the net is for like, anti-Islamic or Muslim sentiment that's happening in, in the UK. But like, I do agree. It's very hard to suss out like where it goes when when this stuff happens. This isn't quite the instrument that uh, that Dylan was asking for, but there was a few years ago a study done by some uh, scholars at Stanford on the effect of Mo Salah, who is an Egyptian-born soccer star 
for Liverpool, um, finding that levels of hate crime in Merseyside, which is the county of in which Liverpool FC is located, had decreased relative to other counties in Britain, that there was less anti-Muslim hate speech on the Twitter accounts of Liverpool fans, and there was a certain, like, you know, experimental survey where they found that being reminded that Salah was an observant Muslim made them more likely to say that Islam was, in fact, compatible with British values. There is some effort to demonstrate an exposure effect on like individual celebrities. But I think, Jerusalem, what your story really gets to is that racism in European soccer fandom is rarely the home team. It's it's rarely your team's fans. It's usually the other team's fans and them using that against your team. And so I think it would be much harder to figure out what the effect of you know, X team having more immigrant players is on fans of other teams' assessments of, you know, various immigrant groups. But that does seem to be the kind of critical question, although there is probably some more interesting work to be done on whether, like, the Mosala effect is, you know, more broadly shared when it's not just one superstar player, but having a team that is more immigrant more generally. That is all for us today. Thanks so much to Vox's Jerusalem Dempsis and ProPublica's Dara Lind for joining the panel. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Top Podcasts. And I'm your host, Dylan Matthews. You can get even more Weeds content by signing up for our newsletter. Go to vox.com slash weedsletter. We will be back in your feeds this Friday with an episode. We'll see you then. (laughs) (laughs) The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. What are we doing? (laughs) We won't be back. It's Thanksgiving. Oh, right. (laughs) We will not be back in your feeds this Friday because of American Thanksgiving, which is a holiday. We will see you after that. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, Dylan. Amazing. Really hyped us up for the holidays. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.